Welcome back, Friday morning, uh, 9.05. Um, the beginning of the second day of our uh, two and a half day consultation on uh, Marcus Bart and his legacy. Um, we start this morning the first of four papers on uh, today with uh, Randy Rashkover, who's come to us from George Mason University, where she's Associate Professor of Religious Studies uh, and has particular uh, leadership responsibilities for, 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 for their Judaic Studies program. Um, she's written a whole range of material. Her, her journey, as she explained it to me this morning, has been long uh, and, and much has changed. Um, it started with Bard and Rodenzweig and is ending up, uh, at least in its, in its current project, uh, with a monograph on nature and norm, Ju Judaism, Christianity, and the theological po political problem. Uh, this morning, she's to speak to us about the Marcus Barth's theology of Jewish-Christian dialogue, a pragmatic view. So uh, I'll ask you to welcome Randy to the podium. Good morning. I hope everybody slept. I think this is the first conference. I thought about it when I went back to my room last night. I thought, oh gosh, I wonder if people are out having wine or something. And then I thought, I can't do that tonight. So I'm really glad I didn't. But um, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, first and foremost, I really want to thank Bruce McCormick for inviting me because um, it's just, just a great chance to be able to do any kind of work with Bruce. Um, he was a, a major influence in my first book, and I really appreciate him. So I. Um, this is really a pleasure. Uh, so um, my goal in this morning's talk, uh, the talk is going to be just, I mean, I sort of like when the pilot says, you know, we see a little turbulence coming. Um, <laughs> uh, we don't know. Sometimes it, it goes away. Um, and then sometimes we just fly right over it. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to fly right over it or we'll have to go through the turbulence. I don't like turbulence. Why? That's why don't like to fly. But nonetheless, there may be some today. Uh, my goal in this morning's talk is to illuminate the urgent novelty of Bart's key claims concerning Jewish-Christian relations and demonstrate what it might mean for a Jewish philosopher to offer a detailed consideration of Bart's strategy for fostering Jewish-Christian relations in the current time. It is impossible when reading Marcus Bart not to appreciate his passion and commitment for repairing the reception history of Paul as a source of anti-Jewish attitudes and for effectively altering how contemporary Christian communities see and relate to Jews. I take seriously Bart's professed commitment to see Jews as the brothers of Christians and to develop a relationship that reflects the kind of connection that one finds in a family unit. I also recognize that there is a dialectical relationship between rhetoric and action, culture and practice. Chief among the occupational hazards of being a philosopher or a theologian is the tendency to aggrandize the power of one's writing and credit it with transformational effects. Constructive theologians are arguably most guilty of this charge. Fortunately, Marcus Bard is a biblical, not a constructive theologian. Still, there isn't a straight line that runs from Marcus Bard's counter-reception reading of Paul to a material shift in Jewish-Christian relations. Changes in ideas require shifts in the invisible tectonic plates of environment, history, and social interaction. In other words, we'd be naive and less charitable than we could be if we took Bart's words at face value. 
Consequently, in what follows, I will lay out Bart's exegetically rooted call to reorder Jewish-Christian relations. From here, my discussion will have to change focus away from a relatively straightforward exposition of Bart's ideas to reflect on what Bart himself identifies as an interruption to his own strategy for Jewish-Christian dialogue, namely the problem of post-1967 Zionism. Bart's writings on the Jews leave little doubt that he is vexed by a certain strain of Jewish support for Israel. It's the very first point he makes in the foreword to Israel and the Church, and it's the primary focus of his later 1978 essay, Israel and Palestinians. More importantly, Bart's writings about post-1967 Israel put his own discourse about the Brotherhood of the Jews into crisis, since by his own admission, his own critical judgments obstruct his own ability to enter into, or resume, dialogue with Jews. As I will discuss, Bart's claim about Christian Jewish brotherhood suggests that Christians ought to love the Jews in their faith or faithlessness because they are God's people. If, however, Bart finds himself unable to sustain a conversation with Jews on the grounds of a polemical disagreement regarding Zionism, it would seem that the issue of Zionism either challenges the mandate to love them even in their faithlessness or exposes an implicit condition within this very mandate, a condition that in itself sustains a polemical divide between the two communities such that it will be difficult for Bart to resume the dialogue. The remainder of my essay will examine this problem in Bart's thinking and attempt to offer a working solution that can permit followers of Bart's ideas to continue to engage in productive and meaningful Jewish-Christian conversation. To do this, I will perform a thought experiment, a few thought experiments. These scenarios apply one of two models of interreligious dialogue. The first is what we might call an agreement-disagreement model that attempts to establish dialogue on the grounds of shared truth claims. The second model can be called a pragmatic model. It's not rooted in shared claims, but in the exchange of rationality conditions for said claims. Okay, any discussion of Bart's contribution to Jewish-Christian relations has to begin by appreciating Bart's exegetical and moral insistence that Christians foster a deep familial relationship with Jews. As a Jewish thinker, I stand in a very complex relationship to this recognition. On the one hand, I am the beneficiary of Bart's exegetical justifications. I wouldn't be here if Bart hadn't inspired others to pursue Jewish-Christian relations. On the other hand, it will be my central contention this morning that while exegetical justifications like those developed by Bart can provide strong moral arguments to persons in his own community to pursue a positive relationship with Jews, these moral claims aren't the best topics of conversation once everyone sits down. As I will discuss, <clears throat> Bart was aware of the fact that his views on Zionism presented a crisis to his ability to pursue Jewish-Christian relations. Although he does not, in my view, adequately resolve the crisis, I am relatively sure on pragmatic grounds that had he had more time, Bart would have realized the need to shift his focus away 
from a performative assertion that Jewish-Christian relations are morally significant to a willingness to investigate how to establish Jewish-Christian relations in the context of the contemporary facts surrounding the state of Israel and the range of Jewish attitudes toward it. Had he had more time, Bart would have been able to recognize what I will explain as a category error concerning the appropriate function of moral claims in relation to Jewish-Christian dialogue. So um, the paragraph that I just gave is uh, my gateway claim to what is, for me, a central claim in the paper. I'm trying to provide what we call an imminent critique of BART, that is to say, uh, not an external critique where I'm standing outside, but I'm trying to demonstrate that his own concern over um, post-1967 uh, Israel uh, constitutes a crisis within his own discourse about brotherhood. Um, and so I'm, I'm pretty confident that had he been around a little longer, the crisis would have brewed to an, a point where it would have activated his own reflection in a way that I'm going to play out. Unfortunately, Bart's writings about the importance of Jewish-Christian relations fall prey to this category error. Bart's volume, Church in Israel, offers a particularly useful example of this error, since here Bart offers a detailed presentation of the moral arguments in favor of a Christian recognition of the Jews as the people of God that he originally presented as speeches for and to Jewish audiences as part of his effort to cultivate Jewish-Christian relations. So again, this central text, uh, The Church in Israel, which is uh, a review of his moral argument in favor of Jewish-Christian dialogue, um, is a text that was rhetorically presented as speeches to Jewish audiences and for the sake of trying to foster Jewish-Christian relations. Bart's moral claims uh, oh, so before justifying my um, analysis that there's a category error here, let's take a look at the moral claims that Bart presents in the uh, Church in Israel volume. Bart's moral claims concerning Jewish-Christian relations derive from his scripturally based understanding of the theological significance of the Jews. For our purposes, we can identify the following elements in Bart's doctrine of the Jews. According to Bart, the Jews are the people whose identity is inextricably bound to God, whose history and purpose is exhaustively determined by God's eternal plan. Consequently, Israel is the people whose historical mission constitutes the footprint of the God who grafts all people onto this mission in and through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus as Messiah. As attested to in scripture, this history is rife with ups and downs. It's nothing if not a narrative of a people whose unfaithfulness to God is met and responded to by God's unique and inverse faithfulness. Quote, Israel's mission is revealed in the exemplary punishments inflicted on Israel and her corresponding suffering. In particular, the Babylonian exile which is depicted not as a mere catastrophe, but as a well-deserved punishment, is the means by which Israel becomes a light to the Gentiles." Unquote. Here we see M. Bart the son following in the footsteps of Karl Bart the father, both of whom maintain that Israel's mission is to suffer and be worthy of punishment for her faithlessness, and at once be met by God's redeeming love in and on the cross through Jesus, the Jew par excellence whose atoning sacrifice is accepted by God in and through his grace. In this way, Bart maintains that the historical mission of the Jews constitutes clear and certain evidence of God's faithfulness 
to all his children, central claim, right, that the Bart maintains that the historical mission of the Jews constitutes clear and certain evidence of God's faithfulness to his children. In their way, and regardless of their obedience, all Jews, Bart says, quote, implicitly believe in Jesus as Messiah, unquote. It's impossible for Bart to understand Jesus as Messiah without understanding that he is the fulfilled mission of the Jews, and it is impossible to understand the Jews without understanding that every one of them, quote, yearns for this Messiah, unquote. Consequently, Bart maintains that, quote, nobody can be a member of God's people without belonging to Israel and sharing the ups and downs of God's history with his elect. Only those are truly members of his people who submit to God's election of the rejected and his faithfulness toward the unfaithful. They accept the suffering of God's servant, the representative ministry of one for the benefit and salvation of many. God does not reject eternally. He remains true to his way of election, which from the beginning has been known as his faithfulness to and his justification of undeserving man, unquote. To say that God would have replaced the people Israel for another or rejected them in favor of a new people is, in Bart's view, anti-theological. Like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, Israel has done, quote, hard labor, and her, quote, priority is as little disputed as the shameful life of the goy, unquote. Indeed, Bart explains, quote, their history is different. The one is many things to be proud of. The other has absolutely nothing. The first is in a position to judge the other. The other has coming to him, whatever humiliation and punishment may be in store. But the two are not left to themselves. God is the father of both, and thus they are and remain brothers, unquote. Jew and Gentile alike are children of the one father, and their unity is God's eternal plan. Contra centuries of active Christian judgment and criticism of the Jews then, Christians are, in Bart's account, morally exhorted to treat Jews as their brothers and pursue, quote, the church's common life with them. To do otherwise is to negate the evidence of God's faithfulness it is to put asunder what God has reconciled in the cross and the resurrection, since this brotherhood, quote, is the very essence and not the possible consequence of the peace Christ has made. It's powerful stuff. Earlier, I signaled my concern with Bard's desire to make the, the above moral claims the subject matter of Jewish-Christian dialogue. I'll develop that line of argument below. For now, it's worth conceding that having been made privy to Bart's moral position, I can, as a Jew, take note of what can legitimately cons be considered a revolutionary shift in Christian thinking about Jews that is evident in his work. Not only does Bart critique the centuries-old discourse about God's rejection of the Jews and challenge the equally old reception history that credits Paul's theology, with planting the seeds of Christian anti-Judaism, Bart goes so far as to determine that brotherly treatment of the Jews is the sine qua non, a faithful witness to God in Christ. Although I am an outsider to Christian communities for whom these claims can promote real change, I can nonetheless appreciate the new practical occasions for Jewish Christian encounters that these ideas can inspire. 
Given the compelling character of Barth's moral exhortation to improve the dialogical relationship with Jewish communities, it is all the more unfortunate that Barth considers the historical situation of post-1967 Israel an irritant or an obstruction to the work of dialogue. Barth's concern over widespread Jewish support for the secular state of Israel after 1967 casts a shadow over nearly all of his accounts of the Jews as the people of God. By his own admission, Barth's critical position concerning pro, certain pro-Zionist attitudes presents a weighty challenge to the prospect of Jewish-Christian dialogue. If, however, Barth's polemical divide from many Jewish communities obstructs the possibility of vital, open Jewish and Christian conversation, it is also the case that this polemical divide presents nothing less than a crisis in Bart's own discourse of the Brotherhood of the Jews. For Bart, dialogue with Jews is we, and this is philosophically going to be a key piece, for Bart, dialogue with Jews is, we might say, a minimal condition of what it would mean to approach God as a unity. Bart recognizes this problem. He announces it in no uncertain terms at the very beginning of Church in Israel, where he says that, quote, after the Six Days War of June 67, it appears difficult to resume a conversation between Jews and Christians about the deepest and highest things that challenge and worry, unite and divide them. Indeed, to continue this conversation today may prove more difficult than it was to start it, unquote. Certainly. As Barth's Church in Israel shows, Jewish-Christian dialogue matters. Unfortunately, neither this volume nor any of Barth's subsequent writings on the Jews clarify how it's possible to realize this dialogue. If anything, Barth's later writings only add to the problem, since as time goes on, he becomes increasingly critical of post-1967 Israel. And the moral judgments he issues about it do little to inspire Jewish communities to participate in any sort of conversation. The more Barth issues moral judgments about Zionism and takes these claims, and this is the critical point, takes these claims as subject matter for Jewish conversation, the less he is able to repair the crisis of meaning around his own discourse of brotherhood. My point here is not that Bart should, as a Christian theologian, refrain from making moral judgments about Zionism or specific issues in Israeli politics. My point is that Bart is aware that his polemical judgments about Israel obstruct his own attempt to support Jewish-Christian relations, yet he doesn't identify a solution to the problem. In the opening paragraph of his essay, Israel-Palestine, Bart tells readers that, quote, everything I would like to present for reflection and discussion about the troubles and temptations of the state of Israel and of the Palestinians is intended as an address to friends of Israel, such as those coming together in Christian and Jewish study groups. It is an appeal to Jews both inside and outside the land of Israel who don't belong to these study groups to consider these interfaith conversations. Here as before, Bart is going to outline in this essay, Israel and Palestine, he's going to outline a set of moral judgments concerning Jews that he addresses to Jewish participants in Jewish Christian study groups. I cannot, he says, quote, 
serve the friends of the state of Israel if I only try to gloss over serious problems or shower them with extravagant praise. Rather, he says, I need to deal clearly with these problems and tasks which present themselves to Israel and the church, but especially, he says, to a Christian Jewish study group, unquote. A brief look at some of these claims, these moral judgments about post-1967 Israel that he says he has to address to Jews uh, will illustrate how contrary to his intentions, these very claims functionally obstruct the work of Jew Jewish-Christian dialogue and actually catapult his discourse of brotherhood into, into crisis. Bart is ambivalent at best in his moral evaluations about the state of Israel. And he asserts critical judgments that cover almost every aspect of the young state's character. It's the turbulence, folks. Early on in the essay, he declares, quote, the unsolved Palestinian problem is coupled with a state of emergency in the nation's domestic life. Israel, of course, possesses a parliament, a government, and an army, and an efficient administrative system. It can, appoint, it can point to great economic and cultural achievements. Still, it doesn't have a constitution. The reason for this deficit is to be found in the inner disunity of the Jewish citizens themselves. Even among the Jews, it's regarded as a miracle that this state not only should have come into existence, but should continue to exist at all. Not necessarily the same um, uh, two Jews, five synagogues. Elsewhere, Bart reflects on the Jews' experience of Auschwitz and links it to an analysis of the current state of Israel. And he says, we have already said that Auschwitz's survival had to become one of the most compelling motivations for all Jews. Since the Israelis were faced with the threat of consistent harassment by terrorist actions that could eventually lead to annihilation, they allowed the concept of survival to be transformed and eventually replaced with the term national security. But these two words have an ominous ring, for they have been misused by aggressive major and minor powers all over the globe. Even so, Neither the implementation of suppressive or suppressive measure in the name of national security by generals, nor Israel's continued hold on the occupied territory has achieved the desired goal, unquote. Consider for a moment the connections Bart posits between Auschwitz's survival and his damaging critique of the Israeli commitment to national security. Then consider the audience to which this nexus of claims and innuendos is directed. Finally, take points one and two and ask yourself if taken together they will or they won't result in a walkout by the Jews sitting at the table. The answer, I think, is pretty clear. Unfortunately, Bart's criticisms don't stop there, unapologetically invoking. Now, may maybe I overread this, but unapologetically apparently invoking Hitler's infamous and violent call for, Ger for German Lebensraum. He states that, quote, I admit I can easily understand those Palestinians who have asked themselves in wonderment how much more territory Israel still intends to conquer in order to acquire secure borders. Is this term really anything else than a cover for expansionist plans, which on the basis of a false translation of Genesis 15:18, call for the securing of living space, emphasis mine, 
from the Nile to the Euphrates for the 14 million Jews who are still dispersed around the world. Once again, Bart is entitled to his positions, but I have to admit that a fast and loose rhetorical association between Nazi-occupied Europe and the approximately 8,000 square miles, approximately the size of New Jersey, of the existing state of Israel is enough to turn even someone like me off to the idea of a working dialogue, and I'm someone who agrees with most of these moral judgments. What options might there be for a way forward? How can followers of Bart's ideas sustain the meaning of his moral exhortation to treat the Jews as brothers, when by sustain the meaning of, I mean, find a way for this claim to be realizable or, or usable in their communal lives here and now. Broadly speaking, I see two primary strategies that Bart and his supporters can turn to. They are one, strategy of agreement, and two, a strategy of pragmatic review. And what follows, I'll suggest that the breakdown of the first produces a forced option, gives way to the second. So what the rest of the paper is going to do, really, is try to provide a philosophical analysis of the conditions of the possibility of Jewish-Christian relations, okay? Um, kind of a transcendental analysis of the conditions of the possibility of Jewish-Christian relations on the grounds of the fact that there is a plausibility crisis going on here with regard to post-1967 that's obstructing his fundamental claim about brotherhood, which can only be minimally realized if you can talk to Jews. If you can't talk to Jews, then the minimal condition of bro then brotherhood has no meaning as a claim, right? You have to at least be able to talk to them. You don't have to love them. You don't have to go out to dinner with them, so on and so forth. But you have to at least be able to talk to them. If you can't talk to them, then that central claim of his own, and he knew it. He knew that that claim was in crisis. He himself says it's in crisis. He just doesn't know how to negotiate it. And the way forward is a philosophical mechanics of Jewish and Christian dialogue. So, and I say there are two potential strategies. These are classic strategies, right? I'm not the first person to think of these two strategies. Um, uh, I've thought of these strategies. David Novak's used some of these strategies. Nick Adams has used these strategies. Peter Oakes has used these strategies. If I were Marcus Bart or one of his supportive Christian readers, and I recognized a crisis of meaning around my own moral defense of a dialogical relationship with Jews, my first instinct would be to excise or attempt to walk around the potential obstruction. In this particular case, the irritant, as we have noted, consists in the reality of post-1967 Israel and the polemical relationship between Bart's critical judgments against Israel and general widespread Jewish communal support for Israel. At first glance, this might seem to be a reasonable option. Just get rid of the bad claim. Just don't pay attention to the bad claim. Since Bart argues that Christians ought to relate to Jews as brothers, regardless of their faith or faithfulness, Jewish support for post-1967 State of Israel shouldn't have any bearing whatsoever on the moral responsibility of Christians to pursue Jewish-Christian relations. According to this option, this is within the um, option of agreement uh, model for Jewish-Christian relations, Christians can and ought to bracket off any moral judgments they have about Zionism and attempt to establish a relationship with Jews on the grounds of claims shared by both communities. Theologians who opt for this strategy of orienting Jewish-Christian dialogue around shared truth claims appeal to common truths deriving from either the revelatory content of their traditions or to universal or essential claims common to natural theology or reason. Bart's own sympathies appear to lie with the first of these two options. This is the approach he takes in his own Jewish-Christian dialogue. 
where Bart hangs his dialogical hopes on the idea that Jews and Christians can rally around their common belief in what it means to be a member of God's people. Throughout this work, Bart references the names of Cohen and Rosenzweig and Buber, whose Jewish people theology resembles his own. In current times, we might easily imagine a conversation between Bart and, oh, I don't know, somebody like David Novak over what it means to live in the service of the biblical God who elects Israel. That conversation has been had. It's been fruitful. But there are limits to this strategy. Imagine, in the current case, a conversation between a Jewish and a Christian community staged and directed by Marcus Bart. Undoubtedly, as a leader, uh, undoubtedly, uh, as a leader, Bart would likely invite the two communities, this is sort of scenario, to study biblical texts that speak explicitly about the God of Israel and the nature of the life of obedience and praise appropriate to that God. Jews and Christians would, in such a context, cheer one another on as each illustrated their overlapping piety and accountability to their status as members of God's covenant with Israel. Imagine further that the study session takes place in Jerusalem and the news of the day reports violent clashes between Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and Jewish soldiers responding to rocket fire hitting a nearby Jewish settlement. Presented with such a situation, I find it difficult to believe that Bart would be able to entirely neglect any mention of his own theopolitical moral judgments. In fact, in his essay, Israel and Palestine, he argues in favor of doing the opposite. And he says he feels it's the responsibility of Christians to take up these matters in and with Jews, since Jews should avail themselves of the help Christians can provide in their attempts to deal with this conflict. Moreover, even if Bart could restrain himself from bringing these topics into discussion, which would be apropos for this particular model of Jewish-Christian relations, his restraint would wax disingenuous, since given his beliefs, he'd harbor them all throughout the dialogue anyway. From here, confronted by his own undeniable concern over the Palestinian-Israeli problem, Bart might realize that there's a direct connection, actually, 